Hello, good afternoon everybody. Um, for those of you who haven't met me before, I'm Richard Sandbrook. I'm a, I don't know what I am, a research associate or something here at the Reuters Institute, but the rest of the time I'm Professor of Journalism at Cardiff University, which is a big journalism school uh, uh, here in the UK, and I chair these Wednesday afternoon seminars, so I'm sure I'll get to know all of the fellows uh, better over the next few weeks, and, and welcome to everybody else who's here. Um, uh, today, to, to kick off this series, uh, I'm delighted we've got uh, Nick Newman with us. Nick uh, is a former colleague of mine at the BBC, where I used to work, um, where uh, he worked in the World Service, uh, but more crucially was part of the launch team for BBC's online news service, uh, and uh, helped drive that to uh, its very successful uh, status that it has today. Uh, the last few years he's been consulting around digital news, and more uh, relevantly for today, um, uh, is the author of the annual digital news report that the Reuters Institute publishes, which is a survey of news consumption, production, distribution across. Yes, grab a copy if you haven't got one. Uh, how many countries? Also available online. Yeah. How many countries? Free online. Uh, yeah. It's uh, tw 26 last year. We're doing 36 this year. Okay. So big international survey of digital news uh, consumption, distribution, and production, and an insight into what's happening therefore in the market. So. Uh, uh, over to Nick, talking about the second coming wave of disruption. Yeah, yes. Um, hi, good to meet you all. Uh, so I'm going to talk probably for around 35 minutes, something like that, and then hopefully we'll have a chance to ask, to have a conversation. Uh, so the Digital News Report um, is, I think it's the biggest and most comprehensive news survey in, in ongoing in the world. Um, uh, Richard Fletcher is one of the, I'm a research associate like Richard here, and Richard is a research associate here as well. Um, and works with me on the digital news report. So, uh, you know, if you've got further questions about the data, uh, I'll probably refer to, to Richard, um, but he's also around the Institute if, if you have sort of further questions about the data. Um, and I'll draw on some of the data as we go through the, um, the slides, um, but I wanted to talk about um, this sort of idea of the second digital revolution. So when I kind of start, when we started out doing um, the digital news site for BBC News, it was just very different um, because people were accessing in a fixed way. There was very little bandwidth, so you know you were constrained in that way, um, and it was primarily in the office. And over the last, I would say, five or six years, we've seen this sort of <clears throat> uh, revolution built around three things really. So one is increasing mobility, so the uh, devices that you access on the internet on. Uh, are increasingly in your pocket or you can access them, them anywhere. The whole idea of social, um, so that it's not just this sort of one-way broadcast, but it's the, the internet is really peer-to-peer -peer now. And then the third one is a lot of those barriers around that stopped us at the beginning of the internet using anything more than an animated GIF on the front. I was, I was told that you could have one animated GIF, one moving thing because of the bandwidth limitations for the first five years of BBC News Online. <clears throat> All those barriers are kind of disappearing and so the, the internet is becoming internet is becoming video enabled and that's another really profound thing. So I'm going to talk about those three changes. I mean some people talk now about um, we're coming to the end of this wave uh, so we're getting near the end of the m mobile and social uh, revolution and we kind of got some winners and losers and we're now moving on to what next. So I'll also start to talk a little bit about what might be coming after mobile and social and, 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 and video. Lights go down. We don't, we don't see you it's, I'm sure that's no great loss. Okay, so what I'm going to do today is, is essentially just very quickly go back over what we've seen. So what's been the extent and speed of the change. I should say these slides will be available as well. So if you want to 
take notes fine, but um, you can have access to these later. Then I'll look at um, the sort of implications and, and responses. So what are the implications of it? What are media companies doing about some of these changes? Uh, then we'll look at the future a little bit and I'll sort of finish off with a few thoughts about what I think publishers could be, should be uh, maybe thinking about in terms of ways of responding to these trends. So um, the first thing is this is essentially what's happened over the last uh, five years since we've been doing our report. This is just data from, from one country, the United States. And essentially you've got television and online vying for top spot. Uh, so television is the blue line and online is the red line. Uh, and you can see that sort of generally it's been a bit of an uptick with Donald Trump, but broadly television's been sort of declining in popularity. And we've seen this in a number of countries. Uh, people are watching television uh, less than, than they used to. And the sort of television is almost the place where print was uh, maybe 10 years ago. And then you can see what's happened to print, which is the, uh, which is the green one, which is essentially a uh, uh, decline, significant decline in people buying printed newspapers. And then the big sort of, the biggest change that we've seen is within online, <clears throat> so online is basically pretty flat, but within online, you've had this big rise of distributed platforms, and in particular social media. So in the United States now, 46%, so almost half of people say that they access news through social, social media platforms. Uh, and that's pretty much doubled over the last uh, five years. So uh, one thing we've learned from the, you know, the, the studies we've done is this is not necessarily the same everywhere. What happens in the US does not necessarily happen in Korea or Japan or, or Europe. Um, and uh, this is the position in Germany where actually uh, things are, you know, some things are the same, some things are different. So here you've got television remaining still incredibly strong and online has not reached as much of the population in percentage terms, uh, sort of next one down. You still see the same decline in print, and you see the same rise in social media, but to a, to a lesser extent. And I think we have three Finns in the room, right? Some Finns in the room. So I've put in some, I put in Finland. <laughs> but partly because Finland's also a little bit interesting, a little bit different. So Finland, and like many of the Nordic countries, actually online is ahead of television. So still people watch a lot of television but they're also using a lot of, a lot of online. Uh, print is declining, but at a much slower rate than in most other countries. So it remains quite strong, but it's also declining slower. And then uh, same rise in, in, in social media. Um, again, a little bit slower than we've seen in, in, in the US, but basically the same trends. But what's interesting is behind these general trends, which of course are averages and tell us something, <clears throat> we see uh, some extraordinary splits, particularly uh, with generations. So this is a question we ask about what's your main source of news across television, radio, print, online, uh, online news sites, social media. And this data aggregates it from all of the countries, but, but we see relatively similar patterns everywhere. And so essentially for under 35s, which are the red and the blue lines, um, you see that uh, the combination of online news sites and social media uh, far outweighs television news. Uh, in fact, over a quarter, this, this bar here, 28% of 18 to 24s now say social media is more important to them than television news. Uh, that's happened for the first time this year. So young people think that uh, social media is more important than, than television news. Um, but you can see also for over 45, so these are the dark green lines, it's completely the reverse. So essentially, people over about 45 
grew up with television and print, and those habits are incredibly ingrained. So they've grafted on top of those uh, some digital habits as well, and you know, they use digital media, but they don't use it to the full extent that these digital natives on the other side of the chart um, do. And in a nutshell, this is the problem for a lot of uh, media companies, is how do, you, how do you deal with these two different behaviours? So some of these new digital-born companies are just focusing on these, these younger audiences, on these uh, digital natives that are able to really uh, do justice to all the new formats and ways of telling stories because they have that focus. Whereas most traditional media companies are trying to wrestle with keeping this lot happy at the same time as keeping that lot happy, and it's really hard. Um, this is uh, this is just a, an example of that of, of the younger people. So this is, uh, I guess, these, these these couple of Americans in 1824, just talking about how uh, social media is the thing that drives them. Every morning, I check my Facebook for any messages and that sort of thing. When I go through my news feed, and I'll definitely find some articles that way from things that people have shared or that just come up on there as news. Social media is, uh, for me, the most important way that I access. Um, it's simply because I don't think uh, people in my generation are going out as much and reading a full newspaper. They're looking at what their friends are reading and what their relatives are reading, what people are posting online, what's trending on Twitter. So they're looking at, um, yeah, they're looking at, 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 at trending. There's this sort of peer-to-peer -peer network is how they're getting their sources. So the tastemakers are no longer journalists selecting for them what they want, but increasingly their friends or algorithms. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion around that. So in terms of what we mean by social media, uh, if you aggregate again across all the data points, it's clear that Facebook is dominant both in itself but also corporately because it owns WhatsApp and Instagram, which are two of the fastest growing networks. <clears throat> so uh, on average, 44% of all the people we survey say that they use Facebook for finding news, for consuming news, for discussing news, or for sharing news. That's essentially the blue line, and then the yellow line is if you use it for any purpose at all. So you can see that different proportions of, of people for different networks are using it for news. Uh, so a high proportion of, uh, well in fact, roughly two-thirds of people are using Facebook uh, for news now, which is different from what it was a few years ago. Uh, some networks are smaller, like Twitter, but it plays a different role in news. So largely that's about influencers, talking to influencers, so the conversations. It's also where breaking news happens uh, first. Um, so it's a different kind of, uh, of, of, of different people, heavy, heavy news users tend to use it. And then we've also seen the emergence of new um, platforms over the last few years, so things like uh, Pinterest, Snapchat. In general, we see very little use of this for news. There's a lot of talk about Snapchat, Snapchat Discover, about some of these new platforms. Right now, outside uh, the UK, we don't really see outside the US we don't really see much traction for news, specifically for news. Um, we also look at uh, some of the platforms that are important in particular countries like Korea for example or Japan, you know, Line, Kakao are, are incredibly uh, powerful but even in those countries uh, actually Japan is the only one where Facebook is not number one but uh, in Korea Facebook's number one, Kakao is, is number two for example. Um, so uh, and the other really interesting change is that when you looked at your Facebook feeds a few years ago, it was about links to news articles. And then, then it filled up with pictures. And now, over the last year or so, it's filled up with videos. And a lot of that is about um, creating content that 
people can consume within Facebook. So you don't necessarily need to link off to another website. And that's actually part of their strategy and has been over the last year or so, is to keep people spend more time within these social networks, these new formats that are being created. So in many ways, uh, social media has gone from being about just about discovery, where it was much more complementary to news websites, to being much more of a competitor. It's much more of a media company. Although they, of course, deny this. They say we're not a me media company for all kinds of reasons. This was a comment from one of the focus groups that we ran this year in New York. So the stories that come through on my, break on my, my news feeds are usually the breaking stories I would otherwise have gone to the NewYorkTimes.com for. So here's somebody who, and now I don't. So here's somebody who used to go much more regularly to the destination site. Now he finds that NewYorkTimes.com breaking stories are coming to him within those social media feeds. So that's a really big uh, change, I think. So this brings us on to why people are using social media for news. So why are we seeing this big change, this move to distributed platforms? And I think there are three sort of core reasons which come out of um, questions we asked in the survey this year. So firstly, people, uh, people use it because it's a really good way to alert them of something that's relevant to them, about things they didn't know before in a really sort of simple and straightforward way. So it has a lot of information about your data and your preferences, and it's therefore able to alert you better than news publishers are. Secondly, it's just really simple. It's a really easy way. It brings together news from lots of different publishers. So without that, you, could, you, you have to go to this publisher and that publisher and that publisher, and it's very time-consuming. So it saves you time. It's much easier. And then the third thing is it's just really easy to, to use those social features to take advantage of the peer-to-peer -peer internet. And those three sort of core... I think this is a really key slide for publishers because it kind of helps to explain why Facebook's so successful, it also gives clues about what publishers need to do differently. Because if they were better at knowing what people wanted and being able to alert them to things that are relevant, then people would be using them more than they are at the moment. If they were easier to use, and if they maybe curated content on behalf of, the, of their audience, that wasn't just about things that were produced in their own newsroom, then that would, that would be better. And if they genuinely took seriously the whole idea of two-way communication rather than one-way broadcast, uh, things might be different. So that's, um, that's social. Um, the other big change relates to devices and uh, the switch to mobile uh, that we've seen again over the last five years or so. Uh, so this is UK data and it shows you what's happened uh, with computers, tablets and smartphones in the UK uh, since 2012. You can see broadly that access from computers for news, this is news use, has gone down uh, quite considerably by about sort of uh, 15 percentage points. And that's not because there's fewer computers around. There's more computers than ever before. It's people are using it less for news, uh, and they're using the yellow one, the smartphone, more for news. So the smartphone is kind of displacing usage. Um, the one at the bottom is the tablet, which is quite interesting because we saw increases in the tablet. A few years ago, people were talking about the tablet as the saviour of the news industry. Uh, it doesn't look like it now. It started to decline. And again, uh, for news use, and that's not because there are fewer tablets in people's homes. There's as many as ever. It's because people are using them less, and that's partly because the smartphone is bigger than it used to be. So the bigger screen size, people are finding that they can read, uh, they can watch videos on those, those phones. They don't need the tablet as well. So they're using the tablet less. And uh, in terms of the implications for publishers, it, they're obviously uh, huge. It may not be the same in all of your countries, but 
in the UK, just to take one example, the morning after the Brexit vote, the day after the Brexit vote, 80% of all of the traffic to the BBC News site came from smartphones, came from mobile phones. On an average week now, it's about 75%, but that includes tablets. This, this was purely uh, smartphones, 80%. And we started the BBC, I think we launched the first WAP site, uh, which was very sort of small, on small mobile phones in about 2000. Um, and, and we had about one or half a percent of, of the audience. So we've gone from half a percent to 80% in, uh, in, in uh, you know, just over a decade. Uh, so, so what about you? Where, where do you get your first? Where did you get your first contact with news this morning? Uh, who turned on the radio or television? Put it in your hands. Okay, it's the older generation. Interesting. I include myself in this. It's fine. Uh, okay, and, and who used? Uh, I don't know. Email, smartphone. Uh, sorry, yeah. Who, who, who used the smartphone? First contact with news. Okay, so about about half. Um, so we, we asked that question this, the, this, this year in the survey, which we thought would be a good way of getting at some of these changing habits. Um, in the UK, uh, actually, this is obviously not a representative group, right? You're journalists and um, you know super news users. But if you ask general population, uh, a lot of people still turn on the radio. Uh, so around 24%, about a quarter of us turn on the radio. It's the first thing we do. Television news is, is important, but it's not had quite as strong a tradition in the UK. Uh, but 16% now are accessing via mobile phones, which is, um, you know, which, which is not quite as much as 24%, but it's catching up fast. In the US, the smartphone is now ahead of radio, and it's only just behind television in terms of your first access point with the news. Okay, then, then the next thing is what do you do when you pick up your smartphone? So who goes directly to a news website or app? One, two... Okay, uh, and who goes to <coughs> social media, email, or some other aggregators? Uh, I see, you see, including representatives of the older generation. Um, so, so this is this is uh, this is this is how mobile and social are kind of going together. So, if you look, when you look at, we asked this question in in the U.S., and what you find is half the people essentially are going straight to Facebook or Twitter, and that's their first contact with news in the morning. Uh, only 23% are going directly to a news brand. Which is quite worrying. But again, what happens in the US doesn't necessarily happen everywhere. And so in the UK, we have a very different picture. We have half of them are actually going directly to a, to a news website. Uh, a lot of that is the strength of one brand, the BBC News brand, which has uh, around 50% of smartphones in the UK have the BBC News app on it. Um, and 33% uh, still significant number are using social media so their first port of call would be through social media and of course you know through social media they may still be getting news from traditional news brands this is not this is not an alternative and either or in, in, in that Excuse sense me. so of course it's not just and well I suppose this just gives you a sense of a, it's a different look at the same issue this is from the log files of the Financial Times and essentially it's showing um, the new digital prime time in the morning and what was interesting about this when they were looking at it was it's not just that people are accessing between 6 and 8 o'clock in the morning. So it used to be, um, you know, it all used to be office-based, but this change to mobile means essentially people are, are accessing digitally at a much different time. That's obviously also uh, then um, supplanting uh, print newspapers, because that's when print newspapers were read first thing in the morning, so this is down a genuine alternative. Um, but the other thing they noticed was the people on those smartphones weren't staying for very long, so they were coming in essentially for little briefings. 
So that made them really think about whether the kind of content they were producing for the paper, for example, long articles, was the right content to hit this this digital smart uh, this new digital prime time. And so they um, they really just changed a lot of things. Uh, so this led them to introduce um, new products that were focused on. Essentially what people are saying here is I want a briefing for the day. I want to get across a range of things very, very quickly. Um, so they, they launched something called Fast FT, which is uh, you know quick snippets of breaking news specifically aimed at that particular time of day. They also launched um, a new curated newspaper, which includes their own material, but also links from other providers. So that curation thing that I was talking about earlier. Um, and They've got a concept now of sort of slow news and fast news. So they've got teams of people who basically are, are working to make sure that <clears throat> uh, up-to-date news happens throughout the day, but particularly at that morning peak. But then they also need the distinctive longer-form content that gives the FT its reputation and that people read at different times or maybe save for later or whatever. So the shift patterns reflect this sort of slow, fast news split, which I think is, is a really interesting way of thinking about, uh, uh, about this. So that's mobile. The final big disruptive trend is the rise of video. And um, this is, uh, <clears throat> obviously there's been a huge amount of talk about video over the last year or so. Um, there's been a lot more video produced by media companies. Um, this is a chart that Facebook was showing last year. And essentially it shows the very rapid rate of growth. So 100% increase. They went from, they claim they went from 4 billion uh, Facebook videos to 8 billion in six months, so 100% increase in six months. Um, but I think there's, uh, I think a lot of this is really not driven by consumer demand. It's driven by the changes that they introduce. They're driven by autoplay video, <coughs> driven by new developments increasingly, <coughs> like uh, Facebook Live, Periscope from Twitter. So this is really uh, very much a technologically driven thing rather than a consuming thing. On the other hand, <coughs> There's no question that um, it is having a significant effect. So these new tools are being used by journalists, by ordinary people, particularly around breaking news effect, uh, events, in ways that simply weren't possible a few years ago. So during the Paris attacks in November last year, we had, uh, you may remember some of these, but the Le Mans video, so this was a journalist taking, using his iPhone, um, the people coming out of the Bataclan, and then that got shared virally around the world incredibly quickly. Uh, the one on the right is a Twitter user called Stefan Hanash, who's, uh, who did basically live streamed using Periscope, which had only launched a few months before. And he had at the peak 10,000 people looking at his live stream, uh, which is about um, what you get for a for a 24-hour news channel on a quiet day, or in a, I don't know, 100,000, you know, 100,000 people, one person with his phone. Uh, you had the um, you had the, uh, the football match, this was a Vine video, so it's a six second loop, and then you heard the explosion. That's how a lot of people sort of heard about it. And then the one on the right is actually a journalist who's using a very small consumer device to take a 360 degree uh, video the day afterwards. And that device wasn't available a year before. So a lot of this is new technology, new tools, which have changed things. So I think last year was kind of really the year when we saw the video enabled internet start to rival uh, television news is the most compelling and authentic destination for live news. And when I say that, I think, you know, previously people went to Twitter first for breaking news. Journalists would go there, you know, people <coughs> would go to see what's happened. But then they would have to turn the television on to see the pictures. And now you don't need to turn the television on because the best bits are there in a one-stop shop, really concise, 
uh, and you never miss anything. So I, th I think this was a really, really significant um, development. But before we get too carried away, um, our um, digital news report data, also in contradiction, shows, despite Facebook's prediction that video is going to take over the world, um, that uh, consumers are telling us that uh, 8 out of 10 say that they either never watch news videos online or only occasionally watch them when they, they're adding sort of value um, or particular value to them. Um, which I must say surprised me not, not least because that figure didn't change from the year before. So we had all this new exposure to video and yet people's fundamental preference for text over video has not changed in, in the last 12 months, which surprised us. Um, so we, we did a bit more research on this because we weren't sure whether this was right. So we checked um, with uh, Chartbeat who look at who sort of aggregate data from around 100 publishers who produce a lot of video, and we found that only 6.5% of time spent was spent watching video, i.e. 94% was spent using text or watching pictures. <clears throat> so it's undoubtedly the case that on news websites, people are still fundamentally interested in, in text rather than video. That may be different on distributed platforms, uh, which I'll come on to later. So why is that? Um, so the reasons for that, we asked about this again in the survey. The first reason is that people say that reading is just quicker and more convenient. So when you're in active mode on the internet, you're looking for information. And so speed is, 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 and convenience and control is essentially what's really important to people. The second reason is that pre-roll ads, uh, which are still very heavily used on these websites, put people off. People don't like them. And they like them in some countries we looked at less than the year before. <clears throat> and of course, Facebook doesn't have any pre-roll ads, which is another reason why there's been more consumption off-site than there is on-site now. And then thirdly, videos don't really add to the tech story, so this is relating to the first one. Maybe uh, news providers aren't yet producing video that is, uh, complements the, the, the tech story or tells people something different. And um, <clears throat> we also just got some benchmarks from a couple of uh, publishers. So publishers tell us that most of their, most publishers I spoke to said that most of their consumption is <coughs> off-site, i.e. through these distributed platforms. Uh, for the BBC, that produces a lot of content on its own site. Only one in 10 users are using the video. So nine in 10 are just coming and using the text on a, on a daily visit basis. And for the Guardian, it's 7% are using video across a whole month. So um, that's, that's even smaller. Um, I think the, the other thing to say is it's not just uh, video. What we're really seeing is, um, is a growth of much more visual and compelling story formats emerge, which are native to digital and social. So I think that that's one of the key points, is that people are definitely moving towards wanting to take in more compressed news and more visual news, uh, or some combination of the two, but it's not necessarily video that they're after. So this is just an example of, a, of one of the new formats, a card format. You can use it on websites, or you can use it within social platforms. Um, GIFs, so this is an example of um, when David Bowie died. Uh, this was a fantastic piece of storytelling that was actually created by an animator, um, and people sort of annotated their own words to it. And it's just an amazing conversation starter about a particular event. Um, and it's, you know, just takes a few seconds to flip through and see the many faces of David Bowie. So these, these are new kinds of storytelling that are not like an article. 
uh, curation, I talked about curation, but you know, we talked about the first FT one, this is Quartz, who've done an amazing job of creating this new way of bringing you lots and lots of stories, but with a very conversational tone to it. Uh, so we're seeing a lot more of that going on. <coughs> um, and then a lot more experimentation around video. So again, these are not traditional videos that you would see on television. These are ones that have um, uh, animations in this. You've got maps coming on top of this interview with, with Barack Obama uh, that help illustrate in real time over the words he's saying, give you sort of evidence and data. So it's not just about the pictures. Um, so there's lots of experimentation. And I suppose the, I'll flip through that. The, the, essential, the essential point here is that 10, 15 years ago, in the, in the first wave of the internet, things were very simple. You had a website, you had articles, you had a list of articles, you might have some comments underneath the articles. And now we've got this sort of explosion of formats and ways of telling stories on all these access. So you've got, um, it's kind of filled up like this, with all these different formats. So you, on the, on the, the right-hand side, you've got things that happen on a website. So, so we've had new formats like live blogs emerge. We've had top 10 lists, you know, all of these new on-site formats, picture galleries, Q&As. Then you've, you've got off-site, you've got, uh, you know, newsletter alerts, uh, things that pull you back in. You've got a um, whole load of new formats that are essentially social, that are producing, you know, involve you producing content on somebody else's platform and then taking, account, taking advantage of their network. So there are lots of advantages because it helps you reach new people, but the disadvantages are that you're sacrificing that direct connection that you have with the reader when you do those things. And then you have more time and less time. So you have things like VR and um, virtual reality, live videos that take up a lot of people's time. Uh, you have uh, long reads, um, uh, infographics and then down the bottom you've got things that just take a few seconds to engage with. So essentially you have all of these choices and the problem for media companies is this makes everything really expensive. You know, which ones do you focus on? Uh, how can you deliver this and a newspaper and television or whatever at the same time? It's, it's really complicated. So essentially um, you have to decide. You have to be much more focused about what audiences you want, which platforms are relevant to you, how to use, it's not so much what you could do, it's what, it's what you should do, and that's the really tough bit. Okay, so just uh, briefly a little bit about business, changing business models. Um, so those are the disruptions, mobile, social, um, video, visual content, and they've really opened up a lot of uh, new opportunities for, for some of the new players uh, who are built to take advantage of these digital formats. So the reason that we've had uh, the growth of these new companies like BuzzFeed, and Vice and Business Insider and Courts is because they can focus on the, this, this digital, these digital formats and particular audiences. Uh, and they have huge valuations as well. Um, but on the other side, on the traditional media side, you have uh, completely the opposite. So if you just take the United Kingdom, we had the Guardian announcing they'd lost 50 million pounds this year, 20% uh, cuts. Uh, the Independent closed down its newspaper and went online only, in also involving journalistic cuts. Uh, <coughs> public broadcasters everywhere under <coughs> pressure. The BBC has to make something like £80 million cuts over the next uh, number of years. Um, so the odd thing about this, <coughs> at least from our research, is there seems to be a mismatch between the value of the brands on the left 
uh, and the value that readers still find in these traditional brands on the right. Uh, so when we ask people questions, the brands people still rely on most actually are traditional brands. So whether they're accessing them through social media or they're accessing them directly, these brands still really matter to people and they matter to young people and old people. These brands are popular, but at the moment they're quite often seen as um, something to entertain them in the downtime or give them another perspective or give them a particularly focused perspective within a particular area. And so I think there's a real mismatch here which uh, is hard to reconcile. I think we're already seeing a sort of a, a, a discount of some of these valuations, but yeah. Um, but what you can <clears throat> you can look at um, Financial Times sold to Nikkei for uh, 800 million. Was it? 800. The Washington Washington Post. How much did Be Bezos buy that for? Less than that, I think about 300 million. Yeah. So there is a mismatch in valuation as well when when these uh, papers. Are. Um, so I, th I think what's, what's really odd is that um, people really value them, but they don't want to pay for them. So this is data from our, from our digital news report. Uh, this basically says, have you paid for news in, online news in any way over the last year? So subscription is much lower than this, but if you take into account subscription and any kind of payments, it's still, uh, for English-speaking countries, uh, there's no English-speaking country where more than 10% are prepared to pay. And that obviously compares with newspapers where it would be more like 40 or 50% are still buying a newspaper at, at least once a week. So it's really hard to get people to pay for online news. That's one thing that we see. The second thing that's going on, of course, is these massive and growing problems with online advertising. So um, we've always sort of hated ads that interrupt rather than engage, but now consumers have these ad blocking tools to actually do something about them and they're using them in very large numbers. So in, um, in Europe, uh, it's around 20% uh, have an ad blocker installed, but that, that's much higher if you're young, it's much higher if you're heavy news users as well. Um, and I think what most publishers are realising, because also just the, uh, the falling premiums because there's so much content, is that they can't make money purely from digital advertising anymore. And that's been a realisation over the last year or so. So... Uh, that's contributing to some of those really bad values that you saw on the previous page. Uh, I think the, the prospects for general publishers looks bleaker than, than for some time. Uh, just going back to this one briefly, there are some countries, particularly some of the Nordic countries, where they're kind of protected by language or geography and have been able, the newspapers in particular, have been able to take a strong subscription to print and convert that into, into digital. Um, but that's quite unusual. And so what, what, what we're seeing then is, is just a lot of change and a lot of um, innovation in business models, a lot of consolidation, a lot of job cuts, and I think we're going to see much more of it over the next few years. So you're, you're seeing people who previously said that the web should always be free, like The Guardian, uh, moving towards subscription of some kind, at least with uh, what they call it membership. Uh, you've got uh, the birth of new micropayment systems in um, uh, Blendle is one, but I think there's some startups in Finland as well. Uh, growth in niche publishing events, more sponsored content, so media companies are trying to sell services to, uh, to brands, content services to brands. Uh, starting to see some platforms, uh, some publishers trying to become platforms, so Shipstead in, in, uh, in the Nordic countries is planning to set up its own platform uh, to take on Facebook uh, in terms of being able to aggregate audiences and advertising revenue and much more e-commerce. So none of these will be answers in their own right, but they're all 
things that people are trying and trying with a lot more uh, focus than a few years ago. Okay, can I ask, what is micropayment services? Micropayments is where you pay um, for an, an individual article. So mm -hmm. I subscribe to Blendle and uh, it costs me 35.35 euros. So 35, what is that, cents? Um, for, for an article and then you get the money back if you don't like the article. So it, you, know, you don't feel it, it just comes automatically frictionless off your payment card. Um, and so we're, we're starting to see those services. I mean, I'm not saying they're gonna work, but. <laughs> um, so new dilemmas for publishers. I'm just gonna briefly talk about six trends to watch uh, that you wanna keep an eye on and then we'll, 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 we'll finish. So I think the first thing is, um, that I think is gonna be interesting over the next few years is um, notifications and alerts. So essentially the fight for attention You've got this sort of massive content, so how do you get attention, particularly on a small screen like this? And um, therefore, we're going to see the growing importance of the lock screen and the notification to tell you that we have some content. So how do you get onto that is, is a real obsession right now for media companies. And in our data over the last few years, we've seen an increase in the number of notifications being received by people. Uh, we're doing some new research about that at the moment. Um, and then you've seen a lot of publishers like uh, New York Times really, really investing in teams to work out what is the right kind of notification to send to people, um, what's the right tone of voice to use, how do you stop them being overloaded with notifications. They have 11 people working on a project right now to, to try and crack this issue. But the reason, the reason for this is because they need to bring people back more regularly. This idea of, of loyalty, uh, that the internet uh, it's not good enough just to have lots of people who see your content occasionally. You need to build up a relationship with them and bring them back regularly. So notifications is a key part of that. Um, related to that is the, is the growth of messaging as content. So I don't know if people have downloaded the Courts app, but it's worth uh, having a download and play with it. But it's essentially, uh, it's a new way of thinking about content. And that's why it's got so much attention. So instead of taking our view of what news is, i.e. articles, videos, uh, it's essentially saying, how can our content fit into their patterns of behavior on mobile? So on mobile, you know, you, you see a snippet, you maybe want another snippet. You don't necessarily want to go to a full article. Uh, is there something in between the notification and the article? And what would that be? And is it conversation-like? Is it like being on Facebook Messenger where you're, you're having a conversation with a news organization? So there's loads of people trying to think about this. Quartz is one. Uh, a lot of people are, are using um, Messenger at the moment as a way of experimenting with those kind of techniques to see if you can do conversational news. I'm not convinced, but I think it's an interesting idea and something interesting may come out of it. Um, the third thing is, is uh, I guess, sort of... Um, Immersive content. So I've talked a lot about sort of mobile moments, which I think are really important to think about. So little snippets of content that um, attract people or give you some information at a particular time. This is a new, very important form of content. But then the other side is immersive content and longer media. We don't just want quick fixes. There are times when we want something more substantial. And in a mobile context, this often means we need to tell complex stories, but tell them more quickly and compellingly. So this is just, I think, a great example of it. It's essentially by Business Insider, and it tells the story of world religions in a compressed way in two and a half minutes, um, based on academic research. Um, and uh, so I think it takes into account, it, it's very visual. You don't need the sound on necessarily to tell that story. Um, 
you've also got sound option. It's, uh, it, it's made for mobile in that sense. Uh, it's shareable, all the rest of it. And uh, there are lots of you know, other ways of doing it. The Guardian has its long reads, which are mainly text. So I think that's also making a comeback. On Medium, you get a lot of really longer articles. Uh, this is virtual reality. The Guardian's uh, now investing in a virtual reality team and claims to be making money off it, which I'm surprised at. Um, but uh, this was a, in a, you know, solitary confinement and trying to give you a sort of immersive sense of what that was like. Um, and it was their first sort of experiment in virtual reality. And you put your head, headphones on, you, and, uh, your headsets on, Google Cardboard or whatever it is. Uh, so people are trying these things, and I think a lot of the platforms that we've seen have been built on the internet, been built for 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 short, slackable moments. And what we're starting to see now is um, is more platforms for longer form emerging. I think we'll see more of that in the next few years. Uh, trend four is um, so this is partly about what comes after mobile, and a lot of people are sort of talking about this: is it AR? Is it AI? Um, and uh, Google did a big press conference about this last week, um, and they talk about we're moving from a mobile first world to an AI first world, uh, first world. And AI is essentially about all the deep learning that computers can do to anticipate your next move. And it's what all of the big platforms are working on right now, so they're putting huge amounts of effort into this. Uh, how to answer the question before you even knew what you wanted to, to, to know. Um, and we've had this for many years, you know, the idea of virtual assistants helping you out, and they've all failed so far, or mainly failed. But this time we have the data, this time we have the connectivity, uh, this time there is a, a much more serious chance of success. And I think what that means is that the interfaces to the internet will change. So people talk about moving beyond uh, UI or, you know, uh, visual interfaces. Uh, into just being able to talk to the internet or, uh, or gesture to the internet or whatever it happens to be. And um, so people, this is why people talk about zero UI. A good example is the Amazon Echo, which is uh, a speaker connected to the internet, which has just gone on sale in the UK, has been on sale in the US for some time and is selling huge numbers of, of devices. And here you would just say, um, uh, tell me the weather, and it will tell you the weather. So instead of looking at your smartphone for the weather forecast, you just say, is it going to rain today? And it will give you the answer. So this is about speed and control. Uh, or it might say, if you're in radio, it might say, play me the BBC headlines. And it will or play me two minutes of BBC headlines. So again, it's about speed and control. And um, how this pans out, I don't know, but this is uh, kind of, this is, this is where we're headed next. Uh, engagement. Um, so this is a huge change. So uh, I mentioned earlier, the, it was about getting numbers, and everyone was obsessed with these big numbers on the internet, and can you get another million? And uh, now everyone's talking about engagement. So we ask people questions uh, as part of a survey we do at the beginning of the year. What's your big objective for this year? And previously it, was all, it would all have been about reach. Now people say the most important thing is engagement. And that's because... Um, that's because th th people realize that to make money, it's not about numbers, which was what advertising was sold on. It's about whether you can build a relationship uh, because that's what, that's what people are going to subscribe to and pay money for ultimately or, or, or deliver value. Um, and so you've got the Washington Post here talking about who've done a huge amount to get more people coming to them. They've now overtaken the New York Times in, in reach over the last year. 
but they recognise that hasn't helped their money situation. They need to get them to come back more regularly, that whole notion of loyalty. And what that means is in newsrooms, we're seeing big changes to how people measure success. So it, it, you, you won't get measured for uh, your article got read by a million people yesterday. It will be more about you know how long did people spend with your article, how much time did people spend, how far did the down the story they went. So we're start, starting to see this these new kind of metrics uh, going through newsrooms. And then the final one is about um, automation, bots and robo journalism, which sounds scary, but I think. Um, you know, effectively, I was talking about the need to service more platforms with the same number of people. And one of the ways in which you can square that circle without meaning that journalists never sleep is that you, uh, you make the processes more efficient. So you put in more automation in, into those things. So this is an example. It's essentially a computer that writes stories based on structured data around sports reports and many... Um, Many agencies are now doing this around financial results as well. So essentially, you're, you're telling narrative stories. The computer is basically writing the story. And they did a test where they had a computer writing the narrative story and then a journalist, and they put them up against each other, and the, and the computer won. People thought the computer story was better. Uh, so this sounds like a dreadful thing, right, for journalists. But in fact, uh, you know, if, if what it's doing is automating what is fundamentally a boring job and allowing those resources to be used more effectively to do value-added journalism, that's a good thing in my book. Uh, another example would be uh, how difficult is it for you to keep up with your particular beat right now? You have so many more sources to monitor than ever before. It's tough, right? So if you had a, a bot that helped you, that you could program and, and uh, push you in, and told you when a, a story was trending or something had a lot of velocity within your specialist area, that would be really helpful. It would save you time, make you a better journalist. So I think these are some of the innovations that we're going to see, again, based on a lot of uh, you know, uh, improved software um, and learning, deep learning. Uh, and then the final example is um, we're going to see, I'm afraid, a lot more video like this, which is uh, a lot of people have text stories, and then there's now software available that can turn it automatically into videos. So here's an example. This is, um, this is, from, uh, this is from Adele. So popular singer, I understand, and, and it's basically um, turning the text story into a video automatically without any human hand. Was back as she accepted one of six Grammy Awards Sunday night in Los Angeles, and she later proved their work was true with a strong vocal performance. The 23-year-old British singer was crying by the time she accepted her sixth award for the most prized album of the year at Grammy. It's been the most life-changing year, she said. Yeah, okay, enough of that. Uh, but you, you kind of get the idea. So, I mean, it's, obviously it's not perfect, but, I mean, the danger is we're going to be swamped with a whole load of automated video, which will push the premiums down for video on advertising, and we're back to square one. Um, so some of this is going to be good, some of it's going to be bad. It's all a question of how you use it, which is how it is with most of this technology. So recap, um, key trends, the moving to mobile, the rise of video and visual content, the increasing importance of social and aggregated platforms, distributed content. Um, in terms of what publishers should do about it, I think, um, I think going back to what I was talking about earlier, it's really important to identify the audiences that really matter and focus on those um, and try and increase that sort of sense of loyalty using a lot of 
your own platforms if you have strong legacy brands. I think for most traditional publishers, that should be the primary strategy. And then you also, however, need to have a distributed strategy that fits in with it um, to attract new audiences because there will be people who will never come to your property, but you want to bring uh, awareness to or to reach in different ways and earn marginal income. So that's about having a strategy that's specifically to address uh, audiences you don't currently have. That's also really important for bringing people back more regularly. So it's a, about that loyalty. You have to use distributor to bring people back to your properties more regularly. So it's a, it's a dual thing. The third thing, using data to make decisions. There's so many things you could do. What should you do? How do you, how do you focus your effort? Uh, you could do it based on what, the, what your boss says, but they'd probably be wrong. It'd be better to do it based on data and evidence. And so that means you need to have the systems in place to measure things appropriately and in common ways so you can make those calls. And that journalists working uh, in the newsroom can make those calls themselves without having to refer uh, to somebody else. Um, diversified revenue streams, so again, it goes back to the point I was talking about earlier in some of those um, models of, of innovation. Uh, you have to assume, though, that your publication is not going to survive based on display advertising. So if, if that's what you're currently getting your income from digitally, you need to think about other, other ways of doing it. And finally, um, don't be frightened of the automation. Look for the opportunities in it. Most of these new things that come up, we have these cycles like social media and everyone's frightened of it and they don't embrace it. Rather than uh, So they, they look, look for the fear rather than look for the opportunity. And I would advise to look for the opportunity. So great. That's, uh, that's it. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank <laughs> you.